Thanks for joining us for the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. We're excited to have Rebecca Nance as the guest for today's episode. Rebecca Nance is a research assistant and PhD student in Dr. Bruce Smith's lab in the Scott Ritchie Research Center at the Auburn University College of Veterinary Medicine in Auburn, Alabama. Rebecca is involved in modifying canine adenovirus type 2 to explore the targeted onconolytic viral therapy in dogs. Using a transcriptomic sequencing approach, the team aims to identify potential targets that are unique to cancerous tissue when compared to corresponding tissue of origin. In this episode, she discusses simple protocol modifications that allowed the isolation of moderately intact RNA from the dense, brittle, and hypocellular bone matrix of canine phalanges with minimal contamination from connective tissue and marrow in a quantity and quality suitable for transcriptomic sequencing. Rebecca, I'm excited to welcome you on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Rebecca, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're currently working on? I started working for Dr. Bruce Smith as a research assistant for what I initially intended to be a gap year before medical school. I ended up falling in love with research and decided that graduate school was a better fit for me. So since then, I've been working towards fulfilling the requirements for a PhD while continuing to work full-time as a research assistant, and I've been enjoying every challenging minute of it. Our lab's primary focus is cancer research using dogs as a model. Specifically, we use a canine adenovirus to selectively target and replicate in cancer cells while leaving normal cells unharmed. To identify these targets that will direct the virus to replicate in the cells that we want, we use RNA sequencing of cancer cells and corresponding normal tissue within the same patient to identify profiles that are unique not only to that tumor, but also to that patient. In this way, we can identify, for example, potential cell surface receptors that are upregulated in the tumor, and we can modify the viral entry based on that receptor. We can also identify upregulated promoters within the tumor that we can use to drive viral replication. We found that sequencing the tumor is relatively easy, but identifying and isolating RNA from the normal comparator tissue can be a real challenge. We then use the targets we identify in transcriptomic sequencing to make the relevant modifications in the adenovirus and then test it in vitro and hopefully eventually in vivo. We were initially focused on osteosarcoma, which is a bone cancer that occurs in both dogs and humans. And canine osteosarcoma actually serves as an excellent model for the human disease. I have since moved on from osteosarcoma to focus my efforts on lymphoma uh, using a similar approach. So my current research involves multi-level targeting of canine adenovirus to target lymphocytes to be used for the treatment of lymphoma in dogs. Cool. How did you get interested in working on research with dogs or canine research? I actually, I met Dr. Smith as an undergrad when I was at Auburn University. To fulfill the requirements for my degree, I had to get research experience. So I started working in his lab as an undergraduate, and they were involved in cancer research then. And, you know, he's kind of been my mentor since then. So I kind of just stumbled into it, and it was a great fit, and I love it. Great. And you recently published a method for isolating RNA from canine bone. Can you please tell us a little bit more about that method and how long you've been working with that method and developing it? And really, what's the new thing about that method? Is there anything different in comparison to other existing methods? 
Yeah, it's quite different. So as we were working on osteosarcoma, we needed to develop a method to isolate RNA from the bone cells to compare to the sequencing data of the tumor. Standard of care for dogs with osteosarcoma includes amputation of the affected limb. So in this way, it was relatively easy to obtain cancerous tissue as well as normal bone to compare to from the same patient. But actually isolating the RNA from the bone was not so easy. Aside from our recent publication, there are no published methods, to my knowledge, for isolating RNA from canine bone. So we had to rely on methods that use mouse or rat bones, which are significantly less dense and easier to homogenize. Bone poses unique challenges for RNA isolation, and these challenges are kind of twofold. Initial tissue homogenization is difficult due to the rigid bone matrix, and the hypocellular nature of bone provides little RNA to work with. We also faced an additional challenge of isolating relevant RNA for our particular goals. With osteosarcoma arising from neoplastic osteoblast clasts or sites, we wanted to exclude as many cells or tissue as possible that did not fit this phenotype. So that includes the bone marrow, hematopoietic precursors, connective tissue, periosteum, etc. And since our objective included downstream transcriptomic analysis, we also sought to maintain RNA integrity and appropriate physiological profile. So with all of this in mind, there were several tweaks we had to make along the way to accomplish our goals. First, we had to eliminate the unwanted tissue, such as the connective tissue on the bone's exterior and the bone marrow and fat within the diaphysis. Luckily, there was a published paper that provided an approach to accomplishing this on the mouse tibia, and we were able to adapt this method for use in the canine phalanges. So using the phalanges, which are structurally long bones, we were able to remove the exterior tissue using a scalpel and cut off the epiphyses on either end. So then you have a hollow shaft that when you combine with centrifugation and PBS washing, the unwanted cells and debris were removed, leaving behind just the bone matrix. Then we had to establish a homogenization method that would be sufficient to disrupt the matrix, but not the RNA integrity. We used a steel mortar and pestle on dry ice to initially break up the bone matrix. Then we followed that with bead dissociation within tri-reagent to further assist with matrix disruption and cell lysis to release RNA. We had to find this balance between releasing RNA while inhibiting its degradation. Tri-reagent contains RNase inhibitors, but the bead dissociation generates heat that might potentially damage the RNA. So we also included steps of incubation on ice between rounds of bead dissociation to prevent the sample from overheating. The next uh, protocol adjustment we made involved the actual RNA extraction step. The gold standard of RNA isolation involves the single-step guanidinium thiocyanate phenol chloroform using tri-reagent or triazole, which often yields high-quality and quantity RNA in a number of tissues, and it's been used for many years. Initially, we were using this single-step tri-reagent method, but this often yielded RNA of suboptimal integrity, and it was not necessarily pure enough for sequencing, likely due to carryover of unwanted precipitates such as phenol. Column-based methods have been developed to address the meticulous technique required of the single-step method, but they typically yield less RNA. And when we switched to the column-based method, we found that the yield was significantly impacted and virtually all of the RNA was eliminated. 
the tri-spin method, which was described in 1997 to isolate RNA from hypocellular dense connective tissue in rabbits, combines both approaches to yield better quality and quantity RNA from difficult tissues. The method involves the initial steps of the single-step tri-reagent protocol, followed by application onto an RNA column. And when we use this combined tri-spin approach, we found this to be the critical protocol adaptation we needed to generate RNA in sufficient quantity and quality for our purposes of transcriptomic sequencing. Great. And with all these tweaks that you did to the protocol, was there ever a minor tweak, major impact moment, as we call them on this podcast? Meaning, was there ever anything that you might have expected takes you a couple of days or a couple of weeks, and then it really didn't work out that way or anything that worked in one person's hand and maybe not in another person's hand. Is there any tweaks like that that you faced that were a little bit more complicated than you initially expected them to be? Yeah, well, there were two tweaks that we initially included that subsequently we determined it didn't impact the yield. So one step included adding glycogen to the RNA, which I've read in the literature can help with RNA precipitation, helps you visualize the pellet and compact the pellet. And so we included glycogen initially in our experiments, but subsequently when we ran it side by side, we found that the glycogen did not necessarily impact the yield. We also included a second extraction step of the aqueous layer during the initial phase separation of RNA because we found in our research sometimes this can impact the quality of RNA you isolate for some samples. So this involves the addition of TE to the tube after you initially remove the aqueous layer, followed by uh, centrifugation again and a second extraction, and you combine the extracted aqueous layers together. The idea behind this is that by eliminating the need to get the pipette tip close to the interface, which could result in carryover, this second extraction could allow you to obtain RNA that otherwise would have been left behind while preventing potential carryover. But our subsequent experiments determined that this second extraction did not impact the quantity or quality of RNA. But that being said, this step particularly is largely user dependent because, you know, as I mentioned, it takes meticulous technique and someone with an unsteady hand might benefit from performing this second extraction. So I suggest if you regularly isolate RNA that is less pure and contains carryover such as phenol, when you use the tri-reagent single step method, you might want to consider adding this second aqueous extraction to see if that improves your yield. We also, as we were working through the protocol, when we switched to the column method, we found that the column kit includes a genomic column that you apply your extraction to prior to the RNA column to eliminate genomic DNA contamination. When we included the genomic column, all of our RNA disappeared. So we actually ended up excluding the DNA column and including a DNA step in the process as opposed to using that genomic column and that solved our problems of RNA elimination. Wow. It sounds like there were really a lot of little things you had to consider when you're working with that method. Other than those minor tweaks, did you ever experience any other minor tweak major impact moments in your research life? Yeah, I actually have a perfect story to illustrate that. Our lab experienced a silly but confounding roadblock that delayed our research for several months. We routinely perform a double-cut restriction digestion of a very large plasmid 
to produce DNA that we then can transfect. And to verify the digestion, we of course run the DNA on an agarose gel, and that contains gel red to verify the digestion. We had been performing this restriction digestion very regularly with no issues, but one day the digestion appeared to stop working. We couldn't see the second fragment on the gel. And I tried everything. I mean, I contacted the enzyme manufacturer, ordered new reagents, tried new enzymes, made new gels, repeated the digestion, increased the time of the digestion. I mean, we even tried switching out enzyme manufacturers entirely. And what was especially frustrating is that it had worked fine for us in the past, and it continued working for another colleague at the university. So after repeated experiments attempting to troubleshoot the process and back and forth communication with the manufacturer, we finally determined that the gel red was the issue. Apparently, adding gel red to the gel prior to casting sometimes doesn't allow visualization of enzyme digested fragments. So we switched to post-electrophoresis staining with Gel Red, which solved the issue entirely. But it was a really frustrating few months where we were under the impression that the digestion wasn't working when in fact it was working fine. We just weren't able to visualize it correctly. Wow, that's a crazy story. You really to add those images and take the extra effort to actually take photos of your experiments and just document everything in such a nice way. I could not agree more to the power of adding pictures. It can significantly help others with understanding and reproducing a protocol, especially in instances, for example, where a non-native English speaker might struggle to understand a protocol. Our group does not regularly include images in the method descriptions of manuscripts. Each figure costs money and even more so with color images. So oftentimes the focus of the paper is less on the method and more on reporting the data we found with the method. So including detailed images can potentially distract from the main idea of the paper. So I actually had the images I posted on protocols.io because I included them in a poster presentation of the method. So I already had the images and it was really easy to upload them. And I think that's also where the power of protocols.io comes into play. It allows researchers to easily include images and details to supplement the manuscript that might make a huge impact on the outcome for others. And it's also easily accessible for everyone. Yeah, great. And I'll be sure to include a link to the protocol in the show notes too, so everybody can check out the protocol and see what we're talking about. And we already talked a little bit about how you're tweaking methods and things like that. But what do you really see are some of the most challenging parts when it comes to method development? If you're developing a brand new method, or if you're optimizing a method, what do you find is the most challenging on that? I think maintaining confidence and a positive attitude when facing setbacks is really important because sometimes it's easy just to drop the pipette and say, well, this just won't work. But to really succeed in research, you have to be determined and tenacious despite perceived, quote, failures. Luckily, our team was very supportive and dedicated even when we faced discouraging results. Also, finding the right controls can be a challenge, especially positive controls for difficult to answer research questions. And 
lack of details in published methods makes it difficult to use other papers as a foundation. And I think this kind of relates back to the idea of reproducibility. Research is only significant if it can be reproduced. With protocols such as this one that have a substantial opportunity for variations based on human error. So for example, this protocol relies on the visual removal of the exterior tissue prior to homogenization and removal of the aqueous layers dependent on that meticulous hand to avoid the carryover of unwanted precipitates. It's imperative to provide thoroughly detailed instructions and changes that you make along the way to maximize reproducibility, not only for the benefit of yourself when repeating an experiment, but also for other scientists who might one day be relying on your method for their own research. Right. And as you said already, sometimes it can be really frustrating if you're doing something and things are going slow. If you're not patient, it's really easy, I think, for people to just quit and just say, I'm done with this. I don't want to do it with it. But do you have any other additional tips for scientists that are working on currently developing a new method or optimizing a method? Any tips how to stay motivated and really how to get through that process? Yeah, my best piece of advice is to read, read, read the literature and then read it again. Nine times out of 10, you can find the answer you're looking for in the literature. And if the answer isn't necessarily obvious, a lot of times the literature can point you in the right direction. Also, using other scientists' knowledge, experience, and point of view to your advantage is really helpful. So ask your colleagues and use the scientific social media outlets to gain insight from others. You know, social media provides a community with a common theme that unites us and kind of establishes a platform to encourage communication among scientists and connect researchers to promote collaboration. And a lot of times others can provide a different point of view that we wouldn't otherwise see. And this can allow you to see the science in a different light. And when all else fails, I recommend pondering it over with a beer with colleagues and give yourself the opportunity to think outside the box and most importantly, think critically about all aspects of the method and particularly why you are doing what you're doing. Having a critical scientific eye and understanding the principles behind the science really helps to troubleshoot the process along the way. Great. What are some social media communities that you would recommend taking a look at? I definitely appreciate ResearchGate. That one's a great one that you can just Google, you know, a random research question. And a lot of times it's been asked on ResearchGate. Also, Protocols.io, it's got a lot of helpful information. And even Twitter can connect you with other scientists and tailor your feed to your interests. Great. And our last fun question is, as always, if you were allowed to make a wish for a tool in the lab that would make your life as a researcher easier, what would that be? I would say a platform to discuss methods and experiments that didn't work. Published papers are partial to methods that do work, but I think a lot can be learned from things that don't work or don't necessarily yield the results that we want or expect. And providing a platform for scientists to discuss these perceived, quote, failures could open up opportunities to expand our understanding of science as a whole. And it can also save crucial time and resources for other investigators who might be exploring a similar concept. 
I really like that idea. And you might have noticed on protocols.io when you're publishing a method, we do ask you what the status of it is. And sometimes we do actually see some people that publish methods where they say, this is something we tried, but it didn't work. But here's what we did. So it's exciting to see that. But I really wish there were more people doing that. And I think there needs to be a shift that happens in the scientific community, because I think really people need to get comfortable with putting negative results out there. Because I think you always when you're publishing a paper, you always try to put like everything that worked great right because that's what people want to see so i think it really would be exciting to see more people sharing the things that didn't work out because most of the time i think most things don't work out right so right exactly (laughs) it would be really helpful to let people know really great idea rebecca thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your stories and insights on the minor tweak major impact podcast Thank you so much for having me and for this opportunity to share my experience. I'm excited to see what research comes from other investigators who use this method in the future. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode. This program was produced by H Media. We'll see you soon.